Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and we'll be picking up our study, walking through this letter here this morning with chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Imagine, if you would, a rather interesting scenario. Let's say a, a bunch of brand new parents with babies not even a year old came up with this kind of wild idea. They would do something that has never been done before. You can see the headlines now. Baby Obstacle Olympics. Sounds good, doesn't it? It would include obstacles that would require flipping, swinging, backflips, cartwheels, you name it, these babies would be asked to do it. Now, just with that bit of knowledge right there, I doubt that any of you would look at that and think, you know, I bet that's really going to go well. You know, I mean, we know that that would certainly not go well. We would look at that and say, don't do it. And why would we say that? Because you know that babies aren't ready to do all of those things. They couldn't actually do flips and backflips and cartwheels and so on. They couldn't handle those kind of things because they're babies. Now, as strange as that scenario would be, We are getting at, with that, something of what Paul is addressing here in our passage this morning. Like, we would consider babies and what they can and can't handle. We're also to consider and care for and love believers who are more likely to struggle with certain things more than with others. So in other words, we need to ask ourselves, Are we doing things that might cause other believers to fall, to stumble, or even might cause them to falter in their faith? So to see this, let's look here, beginning with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. May God be glorified and seen and heard at the reading and the preaching of of his word. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. One. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. Now, as we've been walking through this letter, I would imagine that you might say that Paul has been rather bold. And if you have said that, you would be right. He has been rather bold. He has set forth the truth clearly, urgently, courageously, and by the inspiration and the power of the Spirit of God. However, even as he's been bold, that's not all he's been, right? I mean, this letter has been interwoven with a deep love for God and for the saints. He has written this letter displaying his pastor's heart for the Corinthians. He's written careful, thoughtful, and yes, challenging words, but they're good, and they're for our good, and they're for their good. He has displayed a deep love for the saints throughout this letter. Now, just see right there, even as we'll see in our passage, that boldness isn't the only thing that we're to be known for. There are many people that go around and think that is the key fruit of the Spirit, (laughs) you know, is boldness. And so they go and everything they do is just direct, in your face, over and over and over again. But friends, boldness is one aspect of being a Christian, but it's not the whole thing. There are many other things that Scripture calls us to be as well. We're to be gentle. We're to be kind. We're to be patient. We're to walk in what I just said a moment ago, in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. So whoever you are, anyone any, any of you believers here, are you walking in those? So it's not just boldness. It's all those things. The love of God in Christ calls us to walk in a love for God and a love for others. So in other words, it's important that as we speak and as we live and as we do, whatever we do, That we're not just thinking about ourselves, but we're thinking about others, even as we see here in these verses this morning, that believers are to consider others. We are to consider 
one another. You know, as we saw in chapter 8, even as I just read a second ago from verses 1 through 6, we're not to go around saying, well, since I know idols aren't anything, you know, they have no real existence at all, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to eat food offered to idols if I so please. We're not to go around like that. Now, even in saying that, though, there's some truth to that, though, too. We do have Christian liberty. And this is part of what Paul is addressing here. He realizes, yes, you have knowledge. You do have Christian liberty. Yet in response to that, Paul said what we saw there in verse 1 of chapter 8. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The gospel, the cross, it calls us to more, to a deeper real, sincere love for one another as brothers and as sisters in Jesus Christ, a love that does consider others. Now, you might remember, as we've walked through this chapter so far, food offered up to idols was a serious issue among the Corinthians. You know, so believers... They were coming out of that, out of idol worship, out of lives surrounded with religious rhythms of worship of false gods. Like day after day before they came to faith in Christ, their rhythm was worship of these false gods. So there was this world they lived in full of false worship everywhere they went. Now, you might say, well, that's like today. Well, yes, but it's also unlike today. You wouldn't see church buildings as you walked through the streets of Corinth. What would you see? Well, you would see these temples of these false gods. Now, just maybe to put it in our terms today, Imagine for every church in Madison, it wasn't a church, but it was a temple to a false god. Well, that was their world. Everywhere you're going, there it is. And so food would be offered up to these gods and at times eaten in the temple or it would be sold into the marketplace. And so the issue Paul has here with the believers in Corinth, is they are partaking in these foods without considering other believers. And this is where we see his first point here. Consider those with a weak conscience. Consider those with a weak conscience. Now, all of this connects back to verses 1 through 6. And you can see that right there in verse 7. It says how it begins. However, not all possess this knowledge. As in, some of the believers did not know or perhaps had not fully appropriated this knowledge about idols. The knowledge that they don't really exist at all. That only God is God and there is no other. Okay, so maybe you get that and maybe you see that here. But so what? Well, it would mean 
that if they took part in this food, in that food that they see this other brother or sister eating, it would be a very serious issue. It would not be good. They would think there is a God behind that. Now, in order to really grab onto what Paul is saying here, we need to understand what he means and what is meant by the conscience, by the conscience. Now, we can often use that word, maybe you have, you know, we can use it without even thinking twice, you know, but what is Paul getting at here in these verses as he talks about believers and their conscience? Well, conscience is a gauge for navigating the world, gauging what is right or wrong, gauging what is good or evil, gauging what is moral or immoral. Yet, as we see that, we also see that our consciences can be off as well. They can be, in so many words, they can be out of tune and even affected by the things that we do. And this is why Paul, he says here that they can be, verse 7, they can be defiled. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, they can be weak. And even verse 12, they can be wounded. And this is also why what Paul is saying here is such a big deal for the Corinthians. As he says there in verse 7, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So if they take the other believers' lead here, the ones who are theologically correct, they are right, and they eat food offered to idols, it's not good. As they eat, they think they aren't just eating food, but they're eating food offered to a God. So in doing that, their conscience is defiled. Now, although they had put their faith in Christ, there was still kind of this syncretism going on in them, this need for sanctification and growth for them as believers. So in other words, they believed in Jesus, but they still held views that were contrary to Jesus. So for example, like when a person might come to faith from another religion, and they think, well, I can worship Jesus, and I can worship this God over here as well. That is syncretism. Now, before you say, in hearing that, well, I'm glad I don't have that struggle, we would do very well to go and think a little bit more and to go a little bit deeper. It might actually be much more common than we think. It might be a conflict between the cross and the God of materialism and the God of consumerism. Why do you think so many in churches today feel so comfortable just leaving the service right after it's done? Not condemning anyone here, but think about When you come to a service, how you think of the service, are you here to just consume 
Even the language we use in America, right? I didn't get fed today. Or I got fed today, right? It's all consuming. It's like a movie theater right now. You come and you see, and hopefully I'm entertaining enough, right? And you're consuming, and then what happens? Boom, gone, right? Just like a movie theater. Now, we just need to think about that. Is that really the picture that Scripture gives? With this kind of brotherly, sisterly, living life together kind of picture of the body of Jesus Christ. So just consider that, the God of materialism, the God of consumerism, and how it just kind of falls all the way through and goes through our churches. Or maybe the God of individualism as well. Now, Scripture is clear on that too, right? We are individuals. But we're not individuals in the sense that America says. We're individuals in the sense that the Scriptures say. We are a body of believers that love one another. That the person that knows Christ sitting next to you is closer than your blood relatives. And if there's a disconnect between that, that's part of the syncretism. And we all can feel that in our lives, including myself. And so we would be right to ask, have we made the gospel look more like America or more like Jesus? And when we ask that question, when you, we as a church, Haven Baptist Church, ask that question, we're getting at the root of, is this simply syncretism, business model? Is that syncretism? And there's a big yes to that, friends. <laughs> and so if it's yes then where do we need to go? To the word. To being like Jesus. Or, another question, even, have we made ourselves the standard for what the gospel is? Any church anywhere in all of the world has to look like the American church. Syncretism. And so we'd be right to consider ourselves. Maybe this passage hits a little closer to home than we might actually think. And so you'd be right at this point, all of us would be right to ask then, what is your conscience to be shaped by? Your conscience is to be shaped by the word of God and the gospel is to be shaped by the word of God and the gospel. Where and when it is off, our consciences are off, as others have said as well, it needs to be recalibrated in accord with Christ, in accord with his word, in accord with the gospel. Now, as I say that, you need to know something. We're again in America, microwave culture, so everything has to be quick. That probably won't happen overnight. You know, when I first became a believer, you know, I was confused on a number of things. And I had questions all over the place of, of a variety of areas of life, of things I was doing before I was a believer, things I need to do now, like how do I, you know, figure out all these things and think through all these things now that I'm a Christian? I mean, now, you have to know something about me. 
I like movies, but as I became a new believer, I was like, okay, well, what do I do with those? <laughs> you know, what do I do with movies? Is it okay to watch movies? Do they need to be only Christian movies only, with all the bad acting and everything? I mean, is that it? You know, and maybe you're like, well, I don't have that struggle. I never thought about movies and struggled with that when I became a Christian. You know, but I did. I didn't know. What do you do with all these things? And it just rolled right on from there, right? And maybe you haven't thought about this. Maybe you should. You know, (laughs) thinking about like, what about music? What about books? What about other things? Now, I worked through all of those things, but it took time. And it maybe took more time than it would take for you. Even up to the point I married my wife, Megan, I was still like wrestling with this. What movies should I watch? What should I do? And by God's grace, over time, work through those things. And maybe it's not that for you at all. Like you're like, I'm good with that. I got that figured out. Maybe you grew up in an environment where everything was just so legalistic. I mean, one false move and you're lost. Like any sin, any mistake. I mean, you're, if you're sitting there in the pew as a child and you're like, you make one peep, oh man, you may have just lost your salvation. I mean, we can laugh at that, but that, many homes are shaped that way. Every time you mess up, there's just, there's just no room to move or to breathe. Every time you messed up, you had this sense as though there is no hope for you, no salvation. Any mistakes, any sin, and you're done. Now, is that true with what Scripture says? No. The gospel is for sinners. It's not about gaining favor with God by coming to church every Sunday, by getting baptized, by taking part in the Lord's Supper. None of those things are what make you right with God. It's only Christ. Amen. Yet, as if you've grown up in a home like that, even things that don't matter whatsoever, you have guilt over it. You feel like you did something wrong, like you sinned against God when you didn't. Well, that's all these things. These are some flavors in our day of what the Corinthians were wrestling with. Now, in all of those things, in response to things like these, in our own lives, we need to consider, are our consciences being shaped by Scripture, by Christ, and by the gospel. Not by legalism. Not by antinomianism either. Like, everything's fine. (laughs) I, I belong to Jesus. I can do anything I want. I mean, sin, if I sin, grace abounds all the more, right? Like Paul says in Romans. So not that either. And not mysticism either, where it's like this unmediated, experiential communion with God that has nothing to do with God's word and even can go well beyond God's word as well. Not that either, not materialism, not individualism, but your conscience is to be shaped by Christ, by his word, and by the cross of Christ. Now, as we see all of that, 
We come here, though, to Paul's main concern and the second point here. Consider your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Consider your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Now, these ones among the Corinthians, the ones who had knowledge, they might have had the correct theological knowledge, they may have been right. They did and had Christian liberty, yet they were in need of seeing the bigger issue. Real people, real brothers and sisters in the Lord were affected by what they did and what they do. And brothers and sisters around you are affected by what you do as well. And this is where Paul makes this point. Food is not the main thing. Christ is. Food isn't the main thing. Christ is. So Paul says in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So food isn't the main thing. Christ is. Love for other believers is. Eating or not eating does not make you more or less godly, more or less holy. Paul's saying eating food offered to idols isn't wrong in itself because there aren't any real gods behind them. However, Paul's also seeing the bigger issue here. The problem is they have this knowledge, this Christian liberty here, and they aren't considering the weak conscience of their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's right here that Paul, he gives this example in verse 10. So say a believer with a weak conscience, he sees this other believer, the one with knowledge, exercising the Christian liberty, and there they are, eating in the idol's temple. So what now? Well, this weak, conscience believer, they won't be helped. They will be hurt. And so Paul wants them and us to see that your actions aren't harmless. Your actions aren't harmless. Now, this is a serious exhortation here, as in like warning lights need to be going off for us here. The love of Christ is to be welling up for us greater than whatever your freedom may be for your brother, for your sister in the Lord. Why? Because you could be sinning against them and harming them. So look at the words that Paul uses here. Now, this could be, uh, so he says there in verse 9, this could become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in eating, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's what you're doing to your brother or sister in the Lord. And to add to that, what is he, how does he end verse 11? The brother for whom Christ died. And verse 12, you are sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Now that's another word we use often, that word stumbling block, right? Well, Paul's not talking here about a mild 
bit of harm done to a believer. He means that by doing that, you might be leading them off a cliff, even leading them back to the idols that they had turned away from, that they once worshipped. So again, see that this is not a mild thing. You might not see the cut that's on the inside, the kind of internal bleeding going on, but the unseen spiritual harm might be absolutely devastating to this believer for whom Christ died. Also, he wants them to see that you could be sinning against Christ. Verse 12. And so this would be sin against your brother and sin against Christ also. So in all this, he's making clear that walking in the love of Christ is a far greater issue than Christian liberty. And even the weaker believer and their lack, even more than the weaker believer and their knowledge, their lack of knowledge. Now, there may be a need for us to come alongside that wicked believer and kind of bring him along and disciple them and things like that. But that's not the greater issue in Paul's eyes. The greater issue is, are you laying your life down for them? Are you loving your brother and sister in Christ? That's the greater issue than Christian liberty. So as we consider this, as we're being called to do, we need to see something that's just below the surface of much of what Paul is saying here as well, and it's this. You and I need to know your brothers and sisters in Christ. How will you be able to apply this if you don't know each other? Right? I mean, even that right there gets back to what we were talking about just a minute ago. Do you know each other well enough to be able to even know your fellow brother or sister has a weakness here? The gospel calls us to a brotherly, sisterly affection towards each other. That we would have a gospel depth in our relationships with one another. This means we would be with one another that we would be in one another's lives. We would know each other well enough that we can walk together through these things and things like this in view of the gospel. You know, I can't tell you, you know, how many people just loved on me when I, was, when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ in those first years. You know, as I was wrestling with all of these questions and everything else, I, I probably annoyed a lot of people as well, and pastors also, but they were there for me. And I definitely made a lot of mistakes, but how the Lord taught me through some dear saints who just loved me and walked with me and were patient with me as I walked through those things. And so we need to know one another. We need to be in one another's lives that you would even know that this other brother or sister struggles with this thing. But along the same strain, 
you and I need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ also. You know, we see just how deeply Paul means for us to apply the gospel here, the cross. He says there in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's saying that he would rather never eat meat ever again for the rest of his life. He would leave it behind forever rather than cause one of his brothers to stumble. Now, at that point, some of you meat lovers are going to be like, man, I'm done. (laughs) I can't do this. But if that's true, just let that emphasize the point that your love for your brother or sister is to be greater than any food. You would give it up forever for the sake of your brother and sister and Lord. I mean, do you see? You see how strongly the gospel and the love of Christ is being magnified in all this? Do you see how much you are to love one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord? The main thing isn't food. It's not your rights. The main thing is living out the realities of the gospel. Loving your brothers, loving your sisters in the Lord. We are to love one another that much. And we are to consider one another that much. So are you? Are we walking like that as brothers and sisters in the Lord? That we're not casually kind of in one another's lives. But we're in one another's lives. And we love each other. And we would lay down our lives for each other. That's the picture we have of the church and of you and me and what we're called to do and we're to be. It's one Puritan, he put it this way. Perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction, a wandering out of ourselves. It is a kind of voluntary death wherein the lover dies to himself in all his own interest, not thinking of them nor caring for them anymore and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves. Now we certainly aim that godwardly of God and our love for him. But we are also to aim that at one another, laying our lives down for each other. So what are we to do then? Know one another. How are you going after this service? It may take time, and I can guarantee you it will take time. How are you going to aim at knowing your brothers and sisters next to you in concrete ways? How are you going to love your brother or sister sitting next to you in concrete ways? But do that. Know one another, love one another, and let the love of Christ control you. Let the love of Christ control you. Now, some of you may be here hearing this and thinking, you know, I want a love like that. A love that lays down their lives for their friends. 
You long for a love that will never let you go. Well, friends, you have come to the right place (laughs) because that love is found in the one who came to save not the righteous, but sinners. In him, God's love is demonstrated for you. And he would have you come and he would have you believe. And so look to him this morning, turn to him this morning and be his forever. And all of us consider these things and may all of us know and walk in the love of Christ and be controlled by the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and as we meditate biblically on your words, Lord, I recognize just how many areas in my own life I need to grow in this. And may all of us, as we consider these things, Help us to not just simply take up the world and its ideas and philosophies and its ways of thinking through life and family, but help us to go to your word and be shaped and conformed according to it. Help us, Lord, in this radical way from a passage that we probably wouldn't even think of that you would use it to change our life in some radical ways. That we would look at one another differently. We would respond to one another differently. That we would know one another, love one another, get in one another's lives, and lay down our lives for one another. Lord, sanctify your people. Sanctify us, O Lord. Because we don't come as those who are sufficient, but we come to this time, we come this day looking to the one who is our hope, Christ our Lord. And so if there's any here who don't know him this morning also, may you help them to know this love. May they look to Christ and run to him in response to your word. So Lord, as we sing, take my life and let it be. May we mean it and may you work in us and help your word go down deep and affect us and change us and move us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.